Welcome to this seventh episode of a coffee room chat in ENT, collaboration between the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and ENT UK, where we explore the more difficult to manage aspects and topics in ENT. So today I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Shaz Ahmed. Now, Shaz is a uh, consultant ENT surgeon, rhinologist and skull-based surgeon at University Hospitals Birmingham. And he'll be joined by uh, Omar Pathmanabhan, who's a neurosurgeon at the Manchester Centre for Clinical Neurosciences, which is at the Salford Royal in Manchester. And it's great that we have both a skull-based ENT surgeon and neurosurgeon together because they're going to be discussing spontaneous CSF leaks, specifically how to assess these and diagnose them because they can be a really difficult to manage area and they certainly require multidisciplinary input. Hi, Shaz, how are you? Hi, very well, Omar, very well indeed. How are you, buddy? Good. Yeah, not too bad, not too bad, thanks. Um, so I, I think we're, we, we were going to have a bit of a chat about uh, uh, spontaneous CSF leaks. Indeed, um, a, a subject close to my heart. <laughs> I bet. Well, as 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 with all things that can drip from the nose. Um, so, uh, 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 tell me a little bit about about your your approach. So, you, you, I've just seen a, um, a woman in clinic, fifty, a um, little bit overweight, six week history of of clear fluid from uh, the left nostril. Um, it's been around the houses a little bit. Otherwise, as well, not many other symptoms to speak of. What, what do you do in that scenario? Somebody comes to clinic like that. Um, I think uh, the first thing I want to do is take uh, a further history. I want to know about whether there's any history of meningitis in in the past, uh, any history of head injury, previous uh, sinus surgery, any anything that might give me some indication that there is an ongoing CSF leak. Um, I would want to try and get an idea as to what kind of volume is it is it intermittent is it dripping at certain times some precipitating factors when when she strains for example um, and then um, if there isn't anything specific I, I initially want her to, to try and collect some so I, yeah. I would yeah. in, in clinic um, whilst I'm doing my consultation I would get her to lay on her tummy with her feet up and head down so that we increase the intrathoracic pressure, which then will increase the intracranial pressure. And hopefully, if there is a CSF leak, it'll encourage it. And I would then give her a universal container to collect in clinic. Um, I send it off for beta trace or tau protein um, and... Whilst I'm doing that, I write to the GP to get them some uh, prophylaxis. So I, I, I give them a Pneumovax vaccination. You, yeah, we do that as well. Yeah. <clears throat> by the GP. And then I think the investigations are, are interesting. What what investigations do you do in this situation? Yeah, so, well, well. so I, before we, we get that, I'm just going to fire back to you. Because we, I, I get a selected group of patients, but often by the time they come, uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's CSF or it's nothing. But I guess you get a whole bunch of patients who actually have got a drippy nose for other reasons, basal motor rhinitis, those kind of things. 
Uh, how, do, how, what, what's go, how do you differentiate between those things when you're seeing somebody in clinic? Is it just the tau protein? Um, so it's interesting. Sometimes I do get patients with a unilateral nasal drippy nose, uh, which I, I can test it two or three times, and it's never positive for tau protein. And, yeah. you know, in the absence of anything else, I, I have to call it vasomotor rhinitis or idiopathic is a unilateral drippy nose. Have I got any other explanation for it? Well, I haven't. But, you know, again, I, I wouldn't be operating on anyone if they were not uh, tau protein positive. And, you know, however much fluid I collected, if I couldn't prove that it was CSF, I'd really have to have my arm twisted to, to be going in surgically, even if there was a defect in the, in the skull base. I guess the alternative would be if there was a history of meningitis, recurrent meningitis, you know, if there were other things that then were making you think Mm -hmm. there's got to be Mm -hmm. something there and then you start searching. But as far as vasomotor rhinitis, I agree. Uh, I'd want to rule it out, um, but I'm really ruling out a CSF leak and then vasomotor rhinitis is what's left. Yeah, rule out the important thing that's got serious consequences if you miss it and then, and then, and then move on, I guess. So um, you mentioned there about meningitis, and I think that's a really interesting one because, because I think the striking thing about spontaneous CSF leaks as opposed to iatrogenic CSF leaks or traumatic CSF leaks is that we relatively rarely, we do see it, but we relatively rarely see people presenting with multiple rounds of meningitis as compared to what you'd expect. You know, if we leave a patient after after one of our endonasal skull base operations with a CSF leak um, for, for a couple of weeks, they're going to get meningitis. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's just the way it is. Uh, but, it, but these patients seem often to have had a leak, actually, when you dig into the history for quite some time, and many of them have not had meningitis. I don't know what the basis of that is, but it's interesting. I, I agree. I agree. And, and I guess the, the other... Um, thing that, that is is um, is also interesting, or that I, I do then try and, and ask about, is for other symptoms that might be associated with um, a spontaneous CSF leak um, and, and raised intracranial pressure, and that will be any visual problems. And, and occasionally, you do get patients who've you, you know who have got papilledema or who've got some uh, other things going on, a low pressure headache, um, and they're under a neurologist for a long time. And, you know, you end up then putting everything together and say, oh, well, Mm -hmm. actually, yeah, Mm -hmm. it all kind of fits in now as the pieces of the jigsaw start, start to come together. So, so, you you know, we, we've got, um, uh, access to an IAA, idiopathic intracranial hypertension service where we've got, you know, an eye consultant will look in the eye. And, and help us to, to try and determine if there is papilledema. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I asked you about imaging. I mean, you know, I, I, I've got yeah. my imaging. What, what do you, what yeah, do you yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very naughty. I batted it straight back to you. So, so, um, uh, what do I do? I tend to start as you would. I look in the clinic in the back of the eyes to look for papilledema. I think another interesting thing with, with this group, I call them skull based variant idiopathic intracranial hypertension and i've had many a debate with neurologists and uh, and other colleagues about whether or not a patient has 
idiopathic intracranial hypertension or is on the spectrum of that because when they have this, what I would describe as a skull-based variant where they have developed a spontaneous CSF leak, they don't often have papilledema. They may have done at some point, but they don't often have papilledema because actually the pressure has been controlled by the leak. Um, uh, and so they don't have, but, but obviously still worth checking for it. Um, I will always go through the history as you've done in detail. Uh, and then investigations wise, I tend to start with a high resolution CT scan um, uh, with uh, multiplanar reconstructions, obviously much easier now often with many of the PACS um, systems that we've got to do to, to, to reconstruct that in whatever plane we want. Um, and I usually do a high-resolution T2 uh, uh, weighted scan um, that, that allows us to, to, to look through. And obviously, we're not just looking through the anterior fossa, and, and I think uh, many of us have made this mistake in the past. We're also looking back to the temporal bones and uh, tegment to make sure that there's not a, a, a defect there and a leak into the middle ear uh, and then via the eustachian tube. Um, so, so th- those would be my routine first investigations along with the tau protein. And I always rely on a tau protein as you do. Um, and if there is a tau positive result, but there's nothing obvious on the scan, um, then I tend to move to a cisternogram. Um, and we like to do a combined MRCT cisternogram, um, to, to look to see if that can help us find uh, a, a sort of a cult site for, for, for the leak. Um, we, it's pretty rare that we need to do that, but we do it a couple of times a year, probably. Um, uh, and then very rarely we might, uh, we might use, uh, fluorescein in, a, in, a, in an endoscopic examination. Um, although usually we don't. Um, and normally with the, with the quality of scans we get now, it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward to pick up the, the origin. One thing I think is interesting is actually just because the imaging is so good, we are picking up little encephalocils and things when there's not a leak or not a history of a leak and they're incidental encephalocils. What do you do with that? So you, you've got a, the same patient, maybe a bit of a history of, of idiopathic intracranial hypertension or at least the, the, the demographic that goes with that. Um, maybe even, uh, um, you know, been previously treated for it, that kind of thing. And on a scan done for some other reason, looks to be an encephalocele. How do you, how do you manage that, Shaz? I agree. I think it's, I think it's a difficult one. I think it gets a little bit easier if they've got a history of meningitis, recurrent yes. meningitis yes. with an encephalocele. Then you're pushed a little bit more to saying there must be a defect and this is the explanation for their recurrent meningitis. And yep. it's such a slow leak that you, you're not able to collect fluid or, or, and, and that's the, the, the explanation. Yeah. So, um, I think in, in the situation of there is an encephalocele, there's a history of recurrent meningitis. Um, I'd be, I'd be having a frank discussion with the patient of, yes, this, this could give you further recurrent meningitis and, um, uh, I, I, I would then be inclined to consider surgery. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I guess the other, the other thing that, that, uh, uh, with, with imaging is also sites of leak. And, yes. you know, there, there are the common sites we look, look for in, you know, it's described as Sternberg's canal. So in that lateral pterygoid mm-hmm. recess that you'd see in, in the superior lateral aspect, 
a defect and the encephalus seal comes down and then comes medially into the sphenoid and then can come mm. anteriorly into the nose mm. as well. But mm. then other sites of, uh, 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 are also there, which yes. is um, um, in the anterior skull base. Um, mm-hmm. Often, just as you say, a tiny uh, olfactory nerve that mm. suddenly balloons out. And yeah. that's not that uncommon. And, you, you know, you've just said, you know, we sometimes see these little meningus fields and, and that's, that's w- w- what it is. And, and yeah. then, you know, we, we occasionally, I had one earlier this year of a, a, a congenital echodosis for cellophoria. So yes. um, in, in the clivus. And yeah. you've just got to then, you know, when I look at a scan, I look at all these areas. I look at the common sites in the, in the lateral sphenoid. Then I look at the anterior skull base. Then I look at the clivus. Mm. Um, and if I can't see any of those, then I go to the ear because, you know, you do occasionally get caught out with, fluid that's coming in through the eustachian tube um, and, and out of the nose. So it is still yeah. a but it's, it's an uh, otological cause. So, you know, put, putting all that together and then um, uh, working with that. It's interesting. You mentioned cisternograms. Uh, so mm-hmm. in, in, in my practice, we would do uh, high, high, just as you would high resolution CT scan with a navigation protocol so that, you use the same scan yeah. for your image guidance. Yes. And just, just as you said, a, a heavy T2 weighted cis sequence so that you can look at where this um, um, fluid is, is leaking. Um, mm. And then, in fact, I, I, I tend to use that with the CT and then use intraoperative um, intrathecal fluorescein injection. And do you, do you routinely use it? Because we... Um... Uh, sort of tended to to to, to reserve that and, and only use it in select cases if we can see a pretty obvious sight on the uh, on the preoperative imaging we don't we don't bother um, but but what what's your what are your thoughts on that so for for I think it's it's uh, it's personal choice mm. uh, so in in my practice I routinely use it for all of my spontaneous CS athletes. And it's partly because a number of these patients, especially if they have raised intracranial pressure, it will be multiple sites. And, you know, the the skull base, when you image them and reconstruct it, is like a pepper pot. And Mm. you'll have a defect here and there's a dehiscence here. Mm. And today it's leaking here. You plug it, the pressure goes back up. And then, Mm. you know, the contralateral side suddenly pops out and and leaks as nature is saying, hey, I need Mm. a, a, a release here. And do you think, do you, do you, do, and do you think, you, you know, from your experience, do you often pick up those secondary sites that sometimes open up once you fix the primary defect? Do you often find those where, with, with the fluorescein the first time round, or do they still do that? You, you plug up the primary hole and they still come back with a, with, with a leak from a second yeah. site. So I, I agree with you in that I think that a good CT scan and a good MRI scan is enough for you to localize because you've also got image guidance uh, to localize where in the skull base you're going to find the defect. For me, the advantage of fluorescein is twofold is that firstly, if there are multiple defects, then I will only repair the one that is actively leaking because if Mm. I explore any other site, it'll start leaking. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. 
Oh, I, I will only repair the one that's actively leaking. Uh, and I guess the second advantage is, is that once I've plugged it and I'm happy with my repair, then I can ask my niece this to do a Valsalfa. And then I challenge the repair to 35, 40 centimetres of water, um, which in my mind is a really good cough. So mm-hmm. that hopefully the patient, you know, I, I can demonstrate to myself that it's a robust repair. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it's twofold. And, and then the other thing is, is that if you're using something infrequently, um, it's harder to use it if it's just once every six months. Whereas yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm using it once a month, if not mm-hmm. more. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's become fairly routine in my practice to use. And, and diagnostically, once every few years, I've had a patient where I'm really genuinely struggling. And they're mm. producing this mm. fluid and it's tau protein negative. Mm. And, mm. you know, I can see a defect. Mm. And then I say to them, hey, look, the only thing I can do is a diagnostic fluorescent lumbar puncture. And if it's leaking, we'll know where it is and then we'll go back and repair it. But I do uh, a lumbar puncture. Uh, it's under local anaesthetic. My niece just does it. We inject some fluorescent and then either that day or the following week uh, or so, one can look up the nose and the fluorescein will still be dripping out if it is. And, mm. and so as a diagnostic test, that's interesting, mm. especially for a really slow leak where you think it's dripping, mm. you know. That's, that's, a, that's a really interesting idea. I've, 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 never, I've never used it as a sort of pure diagnostic um, in that in, in that way, where you, where, where you inject it, let the patient get on with their daily business, and, and come back and see whether they've got uh, green fluorescent snot. Um, <laughs> the, 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 it's, a great, it's a great way to discharge a patient. You do it. Hey, look, there's nothing fluorescent. What yeah. can I? This is this is basically yeah, 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 yeah. It cannot be CSF. And every and every now and then, you do get these challenging one so somebody who's got uh you know fluid dripping from the nose they might have a bit of a defect possibly on the scan or even a little encephalocele um uh but the fluid is tau protein negative and another trick that that, that we've used is putting a little dressing like uh, a mericel or something up in clinic leaving that there for a little while and then taking it out and seeing if we can get the fluid and send that off for tau protein. Uh, and, and usually it, it's negative, but once or twice we've, we've picked up a positive one. So that's another little, little trick. So I, I like your, I like your diagnostic. Um, uh, I, we might keep that one in the toolbox now. Um, oh, Mark, t- tell me about ICP monitoring. So do you do so that? Bef- so yes, yeah, so I'll tell you about that in a minute. But just before we get there, before we forget imaging, the last thing on, on imaging that perhaps is, is interesting is whether or not, do you do venography, um, CT venography or MR venography as a standard or not? So I, I, I don't do as a standard, no. But mm-hmm. I mean, there are there are other features that I will look for on um, on uh, MRI. So uh, uh, I, I look at the globe, uh, whether it's um, uh, uh, more shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at tram lines on um, the optic nerves. If yeah. you've got a lot of CSF space around the yeah. optic nerves, then on on a coronal scan, yeah, empty um, cellar, uh, prominent uh, Meckel's caves, yeah. arachnoid pits, all those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 it all and sort then, of starts to come together, doesn't it? And, you, you know, and then the great the great thing is you've got 
you know, 10 out of 10 of the radiological features, you send them to your neuro-ophthalmologist who says no papilledema. <laughs> no papilledema, no IIH. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, that, and, and that's because they're, they're, they're leaking, they're leaking fluid, the pressure is therefore controlling it, and they're not, not getting papilledema. Although, in those cases, I do find that sometimes when you speak to them, they've had a period, and it may have been some years before, but they've had a period where they've had headaches, they may have had some visual symptoms, they were overweight. I've had a few of these patients where actually when they come to see you, the BMI is not particularly raised, but they'll, if you delve into the history, they give you the history. Actually, they were really very overweight previously. Um, you know, they may have been diagnosed with, with IIH perhaps or, or not, but may have had some symptoms from it, bit of pulsatile tinnitus perhaps. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and you can sometimes dig that out, not always. Um, Sleep apnea is a, is another thing that that it can can be uh, related to this, and and I, and I think um, so as part of the investigations, um, sometimes it's worthwhile certainly taking a history of you know from their partner and so on about possible uh, sleep apnea, but also um, you know thinking about a sleep clinic assessment um, beforehand um, because there is definitely an association even separate to those with IH who who have uh, um, sleep apnea and probably have these periods of raised intracranial pressure associated with those apneas that might over time cause a little weakening in uh, in, in the skull base and, and the meninges and, and open up a fistula there. Um, so venography, yes, I, if they've got symptoms, particularly if they're very headachy with it, definitely if they've got papadema, these things, or it's a more acute or subacute thing, I'd, I'd get it. Um, it's also sometimes useful in the diagnosis of, of IIH if you see those lateral sinus stenoses um uh, so can, so can be can be useful in, in in some cases um what was the question what did you ask you're sticking with uh, oh. the sleep apnea so um yeah. perioperatively and postoperatively how do mm. you manage these patients differently if you do uh, yes just with the idea that are you going to put them on CPAP straight mm. away mm. when they had uh, this uh yes yeah, uh, so- surgery so, so it, 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 it's, it's an, in, it's a really interesting one and one that I, I've, I don't think anyone's got necessarily the right answer to, but, but what we do is we let them use their, um, we tell them to make sure that they're using their, their, their sort of well trained with, with the full face mask as well as just the nasal prongs. Um, and we tend to let them use the, the full face mask pretty much straight away after, uh, after surgery. And we've not had yet. Uh, I'm going to give you my pearl then. So, uh, go so, so at the end of either acromegaly surgery, where they've got, uh, you know, probably OSA and, and a bit mm, of maybe mm. having CPAP, but certainly a lot of my acromegalics and anyone having a, a CSF leak repair who does use CPAP or has OSA, mm. at the end of surgery, I put two small nasopharyngeal airways in. Yeah, so it goes straight back down. And it bypasses the sphenoid sits in the soft palate and they can then go straight onto CPAP straight away. And I stitch that into the septum so they can't pull it out. And, and I keep it there for a couple of days and I've not had an issue with it. They're the smallest NP airway. So yeah. it's not too uncomfortable. They're quite soft and patients seem to cope. So unfortunately, I think we're going to have to leave Shaz Ahmed and Omar Pathpanavan there. They're giving us a really good rundown of, the difficulties in uh, assessing uh, patients with spontaneous CSF leak, but importantly, what other aspects of the history to look out for, for those who may also have 
uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. So next week, we have our final episode of this series, and this will be talking about managing septal perforations with Raj Bala and Nara Alban. So I hope you can join us then. <laughs>